This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, Why Morality Matters, recorded March 14, 1999, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. There's a Zen story about a retreat that a Zen master conducts one summer, a three-month retreat, and about halfway through the retreat, the monks discover that there is a barracks thief in their midst. And they catch him stealing something from some one of the monks. And so they report him to the Zen master. And the Zen master says, mm, as they often do, you know. Mm. <laughs> but he doesn't do anything about it. And they go along for a while longer, and they catch this thief again, red-handed, stealing something. And they report it to the master. Mm, he says, but he doesn't do anything about it. So a third time they catch him, and this time they're really angry. So they get up a petition, and they all sign it, and they give it to the Zen master, and it says, either this thief goes or we're all leaving en masse. So the Zen master calls an assembly of all the monks, including the thief, and he says, you monks at least have some rudimentary understanding of the Dharma, of the truth, but this poor fellow doesn't even know the difference between right and wrong. So he needs me more than all of you put together. And of course, at that, the thief breaks into tears, realizes how much the Zen master cares for him and becomes one of his best disciples. <laughs> but really what the story illustrates is the importance of morality on a spiritual path. The importance of a morality on a spiritual path in all traditions, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, and so forth, and particularly for mystics. And I think that uh, in our own times, among modern seekers in this culture, morality is perhaps one of the most neglected of practices. It doesn't mean that people are necessarily immoral, but, but they don't think of it as something to practice, as a actual practice. And they don't understand why it would matter. But uh, as we'll see, it matters a good deal. I think one of the reasons that modern seekers neglect the practice of morality is because they have a lot of misconceptions about it. Uh, at least from a mystic's point of view, they're misconceptions. So let's look at three ways to view morality. And I'm not saying that these are the only ways, but these are three basic ways. And I think most of uh, people in our society, their view of morality would, would uh, fit into one way or another. First, we could identify as a secular humanist way of looking at morality. And the second would be the exoteric religious way. And the third would be the esoteric mystical way. Now, for those who don't know these two terms, exoteric and esoteric, exoteric simply means the outward and esoteric means inward. So when I talk about the exoteric religious view, I'm talking about the view that uh, ordinary orthodox believers in any faith, not just Christianity, but Jews or Muslims or whatever, would have. 
And then when I talk about the esoteric mystical view, I'm talking about that stream of teachings that runs through all these religions uh, that are mystical teachings, that are more inner teachings. So let's start with the secular humanist way. And the secular humanism is founded on a materialist worldview or paradigm. And in a materialist worldview or paradigm, of course, life, our life, is purely biological. Consciousness is considered an epiphenomena of processes going on in the brain. Consciousness doesn't have any real reality in itself. It's just something that is a result of uh, neural changes and whatnot. And of course, in a materialist worldview, there's no such thing as spirit or soul or anything like that. So when you die, when the body dies, that's it. End of story. So from that perspective, your actions can't have any cosmic consequences. They may have local consequences as long as you are alive. But once you're dead, the slate is just wiped out. Nothing more can happen to you. So from a materialist perspective, there's no reason to pay any attention to what happens to you after you're dead. So whatever morality uh, there is, is focused on this life now, this biological life. And in the materialist way of looking at things, morality is purely a human invention. People got together and made up rules uh, somewhere along the line because they realized that uh, this is societies cannot hang together unless there are these rules, and then they tried to enforce them either through custom or uh, in the most cynical version of materialist uh, worldview. All religions are kind of uh, shams, you know, that these smart rulers uh, invoked gods and punishments in order to keep the people in line. That's, that's sort of an extreme materialist view, but that's certainly a view that people do hold. But the, in any case, there's no objective basis for moral laws. They are not, for instance, like the laws of gravity, the physical laws. So the law of gravity holds whether you believe in it or not. It holds on Earth, it holds on Mars, it holds at the other end of the universe. It, it held a thousand years ago, and it's going to hold a thousand years from now. But moral laws are purely subjective. We invent them. Uh, they're, in, in that sense, they are, have no... Uh, objective kind of existence. And so they really boil down to a question of personal opinion. And there's no way ultimately of deciding uh, which opinion is better than another one. So, this is my opinion, that's your opinion. How would we decide in some sort of objective way which one is right? And so ultimately, there's no difference between a Gandhi and a Hitler from a, from a strict materialist point of view. It's just, you know, little atoms, billiard balls bouncing around here, and that's what it all reduces to. But materialists aren't dumb, and they realize we do have to have some sort of moral laws in order for our societies to hang together and so that we don't end up just murdering each other. And so their argument is usually the argument of social self-interest. So if you ask a materialist, 
why should I be good? Why should I not steal? Why should I not murder? Why should I not cheat people? The argument is, well, if we all refrain from doing these things, and perhaps talking about the positive virtues as well, and we all tried to help each other, we tried to cooperate with each other, we tried to be kind to each other, then we would have a much more congenial society. We would all be happier. And in fact, if we want to talk about something like moral progress, moral progress is progress towards some sort of social utopia. And there's a, a major um, uh, view, particularly in education, that we can teach children rationally and teach humanity ultimately rationally. This is just rational. Of course, if you behave this way, then we will all be better. And at least it was the prevalent view in the 19th century that humanity, uh, the Western humanity, was making progress and making moral progress through reasoning, not relying on God or spirit or anything like that. Now, there's one problem with this view, and that is that in the materialist worldview, life is short and finite, and there are a lot of people who aren't willing to wait for a social utopia. And they will make the counter-argument, not necessarily in these articulate terms, but the counter-argument that, well, why should I wait? Gee, I'm going to be dead in 50, 60, 70, 80 years. Why not get what I can now? And why not use any means necessary, or at least anything I can get away with? Yes, I recognize there are laws, and if I get caught doing this or that, I might have to pay some consequences, but if I'm really smart, or if I have a lot of money and can hire good lawyers, I got a, a, a pretty good odds of beating that. So what do you say to someone with that attitude? Well, it's their opinion, it's your opinion. There really isn't much you can say, can you? And in fact, we can point to people who have gotten to the top, so to speak, by lying and cheating, maybe no people in our own lives, who don't really give a damn about anybody else, who use other people to get what they want, and sometimes they're quite successful. They very often don't end up in jail. They very often uh, die of old age comfortably in their bed. And it seems pretty arbitrary, really, in terms of just the consequences of this life, whether if you follow a moral law or not, how you're going to end up. So the materialist argument is rather weak because it can't go any farther than simply trying to persuade people that if they would make some sacrifices today, we would all eventually be happier, but not everybody wants to go that way. And my personal opinion is, I think we are having experiencing a moral breakdown in Western society, and I think it's uh, partly a result of this. When that is our argument for morality, it's not a very strong argument, especially when the pressure of materialist culture as a whole is get what you want now. You deserve it. You know, you only go around once. Remember that old uh, beer commercial? 
go for the gusto. You only go around once, you know, and people feel this. I'm here now. I got a short life. I better grab what I can. So that is in, in, uh, in general outlines, a materialist view of morality. It's all relative. It's a human invention. And the reasons are almost purely social. But then we look at the exoteric religious view of morality, which is the older, more ancient view. We find a quite a different view of morality here. And I'm not talking about just Christianity or just Judaism. I'm talking about if we look at the major religions of the world, East and West. And we find that they, their codes are certainly different. And even their worldviews have quite significant differences. But they do have one thing in common. They are all rooted in sacred worldviews. And in a sacred worldview... There is a spiritual dimension to the cosmos. It doesn't all just reduce down to atoms bouncing around. And in some sense, there is the uh, conviction that our lives transcend this physical embodiment. So whether it's considered a spirit, uh, a soul, uh, a, a continuity to consciousness that is, uh, will not die with the body. So this is what all these religions at least have in common, even though they do exhibit many, many differences. And so this different, quite different view of the world enters into and shapes their view of morality. There are two basic ways of viewing uh, what happens after death, what happens to this spirit, to our consciousness, to soul, or whatever you want to call it, and however you want to conceive it. <laughs> and we can, we can divide them up between the way it's viewed in the East and the way it's viewed in the West. And in the West, among the Abrahamic traditions, such as Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, moral codes are not human inventions. Definitely not human inventions. They are divinely revealed laws. And they are cosmic laws, like the law of gravity in a certain sense, and they determine our cosmic fate. So there are cosmic consequences for breaking these codes, these laws. And in the West, of course, uh, I mean to say it very simply, you obey them and you go to heaven, and you disobey them and you go to hell. That's pretty straightforward and pretty clear cut. In the East, primarily Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, moral codes are also not human inventions. They reflect a law of the cosmos, the law of karma, which is not something human beings made up, according to the Eastern traditions. The law of karma is like the law of gravity. It is objective. It operates. It's not something we uh, invented. And this also governs our cosmic fate, and we have a cosmic fate. And in those traditions, it's still quite simple. You obey the, the law of karma, and you get a better rebirth. And you disobey it, and you get a worse rebirth. And by the way, uh, some people aren't aware of this, you know, in the Eastern traditions, they also have heaven and hell realms. 
Uh, some people think that it, reincarnation is just about coming back as a human being. Not at all. In the Eastern traditions, they describe a human birth as so rare and precious, it's as though you took a, a life preserver, a round you know, <clears throat> life preserver, and you threw it out in the middle of the ocean, and a sea turtle just happened to come up in the hole. That's about the chances of getting another human birth, which is why our human birth is so precious. But in the Eastern traditions, you cycle through uh, six realms, heaven realms and hell realms and animal realms and hungry ghost realms. The difference between the East and the West is you don't stay there. It's not just a one-shot deal. So you keep going round and round and eventually, ultimately, you can become liberated from this whole cycle of birth and death. But in the meantime, in your life, uh, there are going to be cosmic consequences beyond this physical life. And it's, you're either going to go up in this uh, karmic chain, if you like, or you're going to go down. And these ways of viewing this moral law uh, are based on these two spiritual facts that are true in all religions from a from religious point of view. And that is, as I said, that something about us transcends our physical embodiment and will continue, if you like. So the actions that we do in this life will also have consequences beyond this life. And if you want to sum up what the moral law is from the exoteric religious point of view, East or West, it's very simple. And it's said very nicely in the Bible, as you sow, so shall you reap in this life and beyond. As you sow, so shall you reap. So this is quite different than the materialist view. And what motivates exoteric believers is not creating a, any sort of social utopia or better society. I mean, that's nice, it's gravy, because it obviously is true that if we refrain from stealing and murdering and whatnot, this, we will have a better society. But the primary motivation is personal salvation or a better reincarnation. So if you are a, a true believer, whether you're a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian, you're going to follow the moral code because you don't want to go to hell. And you do want to get rewards in heaven. And if you're a Buddhist or a Hindu, you don't want to uh, end up a hungry ghost. Or in one of those, especially one of those cold hell realms. In the East they have hot hell realms and cold ones. I really wouldn't want to go to the cold one. I wouldn't want to go to the hot one either. <laughs> And you do want to get a better birth. So the motivation here is quite personal and quite concrete. But then there's a little bit of a problem here. Because if moral laws are divinely revealed, or if they are written down in a sacred book like the Vedas, they're not quite divinely revealed, but they are in the Vedas... Uh, fathomed by the, the sages of the past, the law of karma, uh, and they have these codes, then they must be absolute. You know, if God says, honor thy mother and father, that's it. There's no room for uh, uh, arguing with God. And if the moral law says you can only have one wife, well, that's it. One wife, period. You can't go to God in these exoteric views of things and say, I don't think this is so good, God. Could we change that, you know? 
No, that's it. But the fact of the matter is there are a number of different religions with a number of different moral codes, and they do differ. I mean, in the concrete instances. So in Islam, you can have up to four wives. It's perfectly fine in Islam for a guy to have four wives. In some cultures, uh, especially up in the Himalayas, uh, it's perfectly fine for a woman to have two husbands, and maybe more. So, it's not like God laid down the law and everybody's obeying it. You look around, you see that there are other people who have a different versions of the law, and they're following them. So, which one is right and which one is wrong? Is it moral to only have uh, stick with one wife, or is it okay to have four wives? And how would you decide that? Which then leads into the larger question, really, because the, really what's at stake here then is how do you decide which revelation is the right one? Of course, most exoteric believers believe their revelation is the right one and everybody else is wrong, or at least faulty. Is there any way, objective way of deciding which one is right and which one is wrong? And there really isn't. And you listen to the arguments, and they're almost all circular. You ask a fundamentalist Christian why the Bible is right, let's say, and the Quran is wrong, and the Christian says, because it's written in the Bible. <laughs> it's the Word of God. Well, how do you know it's the Word of God? It says right there in the Bible it's the Word of God. I'm not uh, trying to ridicule this. I'm just trying to say what the facts are here. So uh, that might be very satisfying for a Christian believer, and I'm sure the same thing is true uh, in uh, Islam. It's, the Quran was given to Muhammad by Allah. It is the Word of God. The Quran is even more the Word of God. I've, I've heard that Muslims who actually go and read the Gospels, which they're supposed to know because the Gospels are also considered holy books in Islam, that they're a little disappointed because it's not really God speaking directly, it's men writing about events in history and stuff. And so we, and the Christians have this idea, this is the inspired word of God. But the Quran is God telling you directly, this is it. And the same thing is true in the East. You know, the Vedas are sacred books. They come down through the tradition and they are sacred. There can be different levels of tolerance. For instance, in Islam has one of the um, broadest views of this because in Islam, the Torah is a holy book. It's the word of God. The Gospels are holy books. They're the word of God. And the Quran is. The Quran is just the latest revelation. And the argument Muslims have with Christians and Jews isn't that their books are wrong, it's that they have misunderstood their own books and have corrupted the original teaching. So it's a kind of a way of dealing with this, interesting theological way of dealing with this. But really there's no way outside of a circular argument to decide which revelation is the true revelation. Now it's worth making a little historical digression here because for insulated communities, this is usually not a problem. Now, I'm speaking sort of historically and sociologically. For instance, the Christians, the European Christians in the Middle Ages, 
who are all at that time belong to the same religious tradition, the Latin church. And all your neighbors were uh, Catholic Christians. And everybody you met basically was a Catholic Christian, except maybe a Jewish trader or something like that. The fact that there were Muslims on the other side of the world who didn't believe in your religion wasn't such a problem. I mean, it wasn't such a sociological problem. Everybody you met believed what you believed, basically, and, and all agreed that this was the right and wrong, and there wasn't a big problem. However, when people of one faith start meeting people of another faith and, and having active exchanges with them, it does become a problem especially if the people of the other faith are prospering, especially if they're winning military victories against you. Because the question is, why is God letting them prosper and giving them the victory when they are wrong and we are right? And this started to happen somewhat in the uh, Middle Ages after the Crusades, because a lot of the Crusaders, the Christian Crusaders, went to the uh, to Palestine and fought and often stayed. I don't know if you know, there was a Christian kingdom for, uh, I don't know, it was 20, 50 years or something. And they would meet Muslims, and a lot of them came to respect the Muslims. Here were people who sincerely believed in their religion, who were leading good lives according to their lights. Now this cast doubt on the, uh, at least the exclusivity of your own revelation. And not only that, they are prospering. And not only that, uh, eventually the Muslims drove the Christians out of uh, the Middle East. And then you have to go into all sorts of theological explanations for this. And, and the Christians did, you know, that it was because our armies weren't pure. And there were these movements to purify the army of sin because God was punishing the army because, you know. But you get more and more complex explanations for this. And just to continue on this historical note, similarly today, our modern, largely materialist worldview and, uh, and also our modern technology and our modern means of communication and our whole globalization of the uh, world economy that has been spread by Western imperialism is producing just this effect in these traditional societies around the world. And this is why there is a worldwide rise of fundamentalism, not just at home, but in Islam, in India, because they suddenly now feel that their traditional worldview, sacred worldview, is threatened. And I certainly don't agree uh, personally that the way to combat this is to uh, react in a fundamentalist way, but I certainly can have sympathy for this reaction. They feel like they're losing something tremendously precious. And if you could look at our culture through their eyes, the Hollywood movies and so forth, uh, you might be a little frightened of what's going to happen in your local community when Western imperialism, or cultural imperialism gets in there. And what's going to happen to your traditional values and your way of life. So I'm just saying this to that we, you know, it's our job to try to be sympathetic even with people we might disagree with. In any case, however, mystics have in the past historically noticed this discrepancy in 
uh, the specifics of the moral code, especially mystics who have lived in those areas where there has been a major meeting and mix of different peoples. And particularly in Islam, because in Islam, there were large Christian and Jewish communities within Islam, and Islam uh, bordered all around Christian, uh, the Christian civilization. And there was a lot of mixing. They, the Islam was much more tolerant to Christians and Jews than the Christians were to the Jews and the Muslims living in their territory. So particularly in Spain, for instance, uh, under Muslim rule, uh, Christian and Jewish communities by and large thrived. And there was a lot of mixing of ideas and cultures and uh, whatnot. So in these areas, this became very noticeable, how uh, Christians have a different moral code than the Muslims and the Jews have a different moral code, at least different in the specifics. And what does this mean then? And here's how Ibn Arabi, a great Sufi, describes it. He was, being a Sufi, he was a Muslim, and he was a follower of the revelation given to Muhammad, and he felt morality was extremely important. So much so that he had a wonderful saying. He says, never let the scale of the law slip from your hand. Never let the scale of the law slip from your hand. This is directed to Sufis on the path who are in those days assumed to be Muslims. But he also said this. He said, uh, because he respected Jews and Christians and the revelations given by their prophets, as any good Muslim is supposed to, by the way, but he said very specifically, the knowledge with which the prophets have been sent is according to the needs of their communities, no more nor less, since communities vary, some needing more than others. Thus, what is forbidden in one law is permitted in another from the formal standpoint. So be alert. So he's recognizing a relativity here. And he's saying this does not uh, destroy the fact that, the, that these uh, laws are divine. But he's saying different communities need different sets of rules, and so different prophets come with different sets of rules for these communities. So he's saying that in, in a certain sense, then, uh, moral laws, the specifics anyway, are contingent on circumstances. They do change, and new prophets can come with new revelations to meet new circumstances. So there's a kind of flexibility in here. But if morality is not totally relative, if it's not purely a human invention, if it is somehow anchored in something absolute, then we still must ask ourselves, is there some underlying meta-principle to morality that is itself absolute, that is invariant under any circumstances, anywhere, that is like the law of gravity, that applies today, applied a thousand years ago, will apply a thousand years hence, applies on Venus, applies on Alpha Centauri, applies on Earth. So let's take a look then, finally here, at the mystical view of morality and see if they have some answer to this question. Now, mystics agree more, much more with the exoteric religious worldview, of course, than the materialist worldview, in the sense that uh, they agree that there certainly is a transcendent dimension to life, a spiritual dimension to life, that our biological life is not the end of the story, 
that when you die, there is a, a, a continuity of consciousness, however it's conceived, that transcends that, and so that your action will have consequences beyond the, your physical death, have cosmic consequences. And so to that extent, they certainly do agree with their exoteric fellow uh, believers. But it's very interesting. If your motive for practicing morality is simply to escape hell and get a reward in heaven or to escape uh, being born as a, an animal and being, getting a better rebirth, if that is your sole motive, uh, there's something wrong. It might be a good way to start on a spiritual path, but along the line, if that really is all that it's about for you, that's not going to do it. It's not going to ultimately free you from suffering. Here, for instance, is what uh, the Christian mystic Catherine of Siena said. Fleeing sin for fear of punishment is not enough to give eternal life, nor is it enough to embrace virtue for one's own profit. So if the only reason you're being virtuous and not uh, committing sin is so that you'll get a reward in heaven, they ain't going to do it, according to her. In fact, this motive will become an obstacle on the spiritual path from a mystic's point of view now. Here's what Rabia wrote. She was one of the great Sufis. She said, I carry a torch in one hand and a bucket of water in the other. With these things, I'm going to set fire to heaven and put out the flames of hell so that the voyagers to God can rip the veils and see the real goal. So what she's saying here, this, uh, this business of just escaping hell and, and getting into paradise is not the goal of, of spiritual life, at least not from a mystic's point of view. That is not the true goal. So what is the real goal? Well, from a mystic's point of view, it's enlightenment, it's realization, it's gnosis, it's union with the divine. It's, it's nothing to do with getting to, heaven and, uh, getting to heaven and staying out of hell. It has to do with a kind of understanding of the nature of fundamental reality. which you could get in this life, or you might get it in another life. It doesn't really matter when it comes, but that is the ultimate goal in all mystical traditions, no matter how it is expressed. And what stands in the way of this goal is the delusion that you are a separate, individual, entity, being, ego, or self. So this is why the Christian author of The Cloud of Unknowing, who's anonymous, we don't know the author's name, wrote, unless you lose self, you will never reach your goal. For wherever you are, in whatever you do, or however you try, that elemental sense of your own blind being will, will remain between you and your God. Even if you're in heaven, this will still be true, wherever you are, wherever you find yourself. Listen to uh, the Buddhist Zen master Wang Po, a Chinese mystic, opposite ends of the earth. Never read The Cloud of Unknowing. I, I, I 
hate to make absolute statements, but I will even go out on a limb in, in a relative world and make this statement. I, I, I'm 99.99% sure he never read uh, The Cloud of Unknowing. He says, only come to know the nature of your own mind in which there is no self and no other, and you will in fact be a Buddha. As long as you are deluded, as long as you think there is a self, and some other, then you are not a Buddha, and then you are suffering. And here's how Lali Shwari, she was a great uh, 14th century uh, Hindu mystic. Here's what she said happened to her. Now she's giving her own testimony. When the mirror of my mind became clear, I realized the fundamental principle, and this non-dual knowledge completely destroyed all thought of you and I. I came to know that this entire world is not different from God. So this is the same in all mystical traditions. The problem is this sense of your own blind being as an individual self. That is the obstacle to the true goal of a spiritual path from a mystic's point of view. So in order to attain enlightenment, union with God, liberation, moksha, you must become selfless. <coughs> this is uh, not a matter of subjective opinion from the mystic's point of view. This is an absolute principle. Absolute meaning it's invariant. It applies anywhere. We can even formulate this into a kind of a law, a cosmic law. Selfish actions lead to suffering, and selfless actions lead to happiness. And this is not just arbitrary. It's not because some god announced this on top of a mountain, or because it was handed down by the revered ancients. It's an organic law because, from a mystic's point of view, self is suffering. If nothing else happens, no diseases, no uh, uh, disappointments, no uh, nothing outwardly happens to you, that sense of self itself is suffering in the sense that it is already existential isolation, loneliness, and it's the suffering that we only intuit just being cut off from the bliss of the divine. <clears throat> so it's not that you have to do anything that self, to be a self is bad. To be a self is to suffer. This law, from mystic's point of view, is, I said, just as objective as the law of gravity. You could go to the farthest star in the universe, and if you act selfishly, you will have suffering. If you act selflessly, that will lead to the end of suffering. This would apply in a hell realm and in a heaven realm. This would apply 10,000 years ago, and it'll apply 10,000 years in the future. It's invariant in that sense. Just the way you can try to defy the law of gravity, let's say by jumping off uh, the Eiffel Tower without any sort of uh, 
paraphernalia to break your fall or whatever, you will suffer the consequences. And so if somebody said to me anyway, I'm going to jump off the Eiffel Tower because I can fly, I would say, I don't think so. I think you're going to fall and hurt yourself badly, probably die. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't disobey in the sense that they can still go jump off the Eiffel Tower. But the consequences are going to follow, whether they believe it or not. Well, from a mystic's point, the same thing is true about behaving selfishly. You can disobey this law in the sense you can go ahead and behave selfishly, but the consequences will follow. The consequences will follow basically because the, the self, our sense of self, is a delusion. It is not actually there. And it's a delusion that's created by our activity and our thought. And so the more we behave selfishly, the more we behave out of that motion, that emotion, that motive, the more we keep this delusion going and we dig ourselves deeper. So it's a little bit like a car spinning its wheels in sand. And the reason to behave selflessly leads us to happiness is because you begin to break that conditioning and you cease to dig yourself deeper in. So this is the meta principle that we've been looking for. This is how we know the difference between right and wrong. If it's selfless action and it leads to happiness, then it's good and it's right. It's, if it's selfish action and it's leading to suffering, it's bad and it's wrong. Again, it's not arbitrary just because some God said it's good and, and, uh, and it's bad. We can see why it's good and why it's bad. Suffering is bad and happiness is good. That's the definition. It's not the other way around. If it leads to happiness, it's good. If it leads to suffering, it's bad. But even though this law is absolute in principle, it is flexible and relative in its application. Why? Because what is selfish in one situation can be selfless in another situation, the same action. So it's not the action that we're looking at, it's the motive for the action that makes it right or wrong, ultimately. So the classic example of this is uh, lying and in most situations, we lie either to defend, protect, or enhance ourselves. We lie to get something. We lie uh, because we're embarrassed about something. We don't want to be exposed. We're afraid of something. So in most situations, it's true. Not lying is good. But there are situations where lying is actually the more selfless thing to do. And not to lie, to tell the truth, would be selfish. And again, the, the big classic example that makes it very clear is if you were hiding Jews in your attic during the time of the Third Reich, and the Gestapo came and knocked on the door and said, do you have any Jews in your attic? It is not the selfless, loving, and compassionate thing to do to say, I cannot tell a lie. Yes, there are Jews in my attic. 
the selfless, compassionate, loving thing to do is said, no, of course not. Even though you're lying. You're actually putting yourself at, at, at far more at risk because if they ever do find out they're Jews in the attic and you lied to them, you're in a very deep doo-doo. <laughs> and that's one way to sort of outwardly look. How much are you risking here? But truly speaking, because it is a question of motive, only you can know. Only you can know whether what you're doing is right or wrong. We can make social judgments and we can say that looks like from the outside that that's wrong and we, also, we even have trials to determine what's uh, right or wrong. But notice even in our judicial system, it comes down to motivation. We could have a trial. The facts are indisputable. Todd ran someone over with a car. Killed them, dead. What the trial is about is did he do it intentionally or not? And if the prosecutors can prove that he uh, intentionally ran somebody over and killed them, he's going to jail or worse. On the other hand, if the defense can not only fend that off, raise doubts, but also show that the manufacturer had, uh, had a fault in the accelerator or something and that perfectly innocently... Uh, this broke down and when he hit the uh, brake it connected to the accelerator or something like that he's going to go scot-free because it's not the facts per se without the motivation that determines what's just and not just it's the motivation and truly speaking only you can know your own heart what's going on there's another little Zen story to illustrate this, and that is about a, uh, a guy who was a student of Zen, a practitioner of Zen, who was also a great portrait painter. And he painted rich people's portraits and decorated their houses with his paintings. And he charged an arm and a leg. He just price gouged these people. And they all complained, but they all went to him because he was the best around. But they all thought, what a stingy, greedy son of a bitch he was. And then when he died, they found out he'd been using all this money to support orphanages all over Japan. And he hadn't kept any of it. Oh, and then they thought, oh, what a great saint he is. His motivation was so pure, he didn't even bother to try to defend himself during his lifetime, as most of us might have done, saying, oh, no, I'm not keeping this money for myself, because God forbid you should think I'm a greedy son of a bitch. You see, I'm good. I'm giving it all away to orphanages. He didn't even say anything about that. But the idea of the story is, of course, and when they discovered his true motivation, it was selfless. And he himself was perfectly comfortable with that. He knew what he was doing was right. He didn't care what if people thought he was a greedy son of a bitch or not. So this is true of all moral precepts. Not to steal, not to lie, not to kill, all these things. They are rooted, from a mystic's point of view, in an absolute meta-principle. They are designed to help guide us to selfless actions. And in most situations, they work. Sometimes they don't. And when they don't, the principle of selflessness, of selfless love and compassion, has to override the concrete instance of the precept. This is why Jesus said, you know, uh, obey the spirit of the law, not the letter. And this is exactly what he's talking about. 
What is the spirit of the law? What is the principle? It's selflessness. So from a mystic's point of view, we're not practicing morality and keeping precepts in order to have a better society. Not that that isn't a good thing, and not that that wouldn't be a good fruit, but that's secondary. A mystic would practice morality and keep precepts even if there was absolutely no hope of improving society at all. And there's a wonderful illustration of this uh, in Plato's Republic. Plato wrote this book called Republic, which outlines the ideal city. The ideal city meaning the virtuous city, where everybody is perfectly virtuous. And he uses this as a format to give his ideas about virtue and so forth. And at the end, it's written in the form of a dialogue. One of the fellows he's dialoguing with, Glacon, says, you know, that's, that sounds great, Socrates, but I don't think the city exists, ever did exist, and ever could exist. And Socrates replies, there is a pattern of it laid up in heaven for him who wishes to contemplate it, and so beholding to constitute himself its citizen. But it makes no difference whether it exists now or ever will come into being. The principles of this city will be his and none other. And what he's saying is, regardless of what other people are doing, regardless of what society is doing, you can become a citizen of the city of virtue. You can uh, take these principles and you can make them your own. And it doesn't matter what other people are doing around you. And it doesn't matter if society is going to the dogs. Socrates also says elsewhere, the true moral ideal, whether self-control or integrity or courage, is really a kind of purgation from all these selfish pleasures and fears. And wisdom itself is a sort of, a sort of purification. And here's what Al-Ghazali says. He's a great Sufi. The aim of moral discipline is to purify the heart from the rust of self-centered passion and resentment till, like a mirror, it reflects the light of God. Here's what the Tibetan master Longchenpa writes. Training in morality purifies the habits of samsara and dispels the stains from the essential nature and causes enlightenment to be fully attained. So this is very different. It's different both from the, for the materialist reason for practicing morality, and it's different from the exoteric believer's reason for practicing morality. Yes? It's, it's also very selfish because you're interested in your own enlightenment, and unless you take the bodhisattva vow of being interested in others' enlightenment, it's the basic selfish motivation. Yes, and this is what makes a mystical path different from all other paths in life. All mystical paths begin with selfish motivation. If you have no selfish motivation, there's no point in going on a mystical path. By definition, you are enlightened. So mystical paths are only for people who have selfish motivation. But if you begin to practice selflessness, even for your selfish motivation, then you begin to discover this paradoxical truth that actually... The more you give up this self-centered action, the more happiness there is. Now, it's, it's a, a true paradox because you can't fake it. You see what I mean? And this becomes very subtle, and it becomes a part of what a spiritual path is working out, finding those levels of subtlety.
and surrendering them. And so the end result is, is another version of the same paradox. You know, to, in order to have life, you have to die. As Jesus said, you know, whoever hangs on to his life will lose it. Whoever lets go of his life will find it. So just another version of that same thing. This is the mysterious alchemy, if you like, that happens on a spiritual path. And you can only learn by doing. You have to do first. You won't understand it until you do it. We can sit and talk about it till the cows come home. Do you know what I mean? But we will never come up with a rational explanation of quite how this works. So when you get in and do it, you discover it. So uh, practicing morality does matter on a spiritual path, on a mystical path, very much. In fact, in some ways, it is more important than the other practices of meditation, inquiry, and devotion, and so forth. They really all go hand in hand. But the one thing about practicing morality that's different from the other ones is that at least in the beginning, those are usually confined to set periods of time during the day. So you take time out to do your meditation. You take time out to do self-inquiry. You take time out to do some devotional practices. But if you are practicing precepts, if you take them to heart and you actually try to practice them, then your everyday life is the field of practice. It is the way to transform your everyday life into a spiritual practice and to bring your spiritual practice to everyday life. And so it's extraordinarily rich practice because every day you will encounter situations where some precept uh, comes into play. And as long as you remember the meta principle of selflessness, you won't fall into that inflexible, rigid trap of, uh, that exoteric believers sometimes fall into. And you will have a, a sure guide to what is right and wrong, even though the circumstances are quite different and changing. The sure guide isn't the letter of the law. The sure guide is the spirit of the law. And the more you do this, and this is, talks about just what Therese brought up, the more you do this, you find something quite remarkable. And that is, the more you uh, practice morality, practice keeping precepts, the more you interrupt this conditioning of self, the more you break that pattern, something else starts to flash through. A different motive for acting. Something that is really inherent in your true nature already, your divine nature. That selfless love and compassion is the nature of ultimate reality. It is your ultimate nature. It's not something you have to generate or work up a lot of emotion. You just have to let go of that selfishness, that self-centeredness. And then it starts to flash forward. And then it's not you in the sense of little you. So in that sense, it it's transcends the ego, it transcends the little self. But in a certain sense, it's your true self. So it is truly you. And the more this happens, the more that conditioning breaks down, the more it prepares you for a final insight into the deluded nature of this whole idea of I and other, self and world, 
that is the final liberation from the suffering that delusion causes. So I think we can, or a nice way to uh, bring this talk to an end is to quote Shanti Devi, who is a Buddhist uh, master, and he said, "What need is there to elaborate? Fools apply themselves to their own welfare, while sages act for the welfare of others. Just look at the difference between them." You've gone a little long this morning, but are there any uh, questions or any comments anybody wants to make? You've done good. <laughs> you let a lot of us on unselfishly. <laughs> you, also, you also made a clear distinction between social law and moral law. There is. It's actually very interesting to go back and look at that. We can actually trace the development of civil law uh, as a meta development over that tribal tradition. And you can go back to Greece and you can see why civil law came about because they were people from different tribes collected in city-states. So no one tradition now could hold sway. So you needed uh, something that w would, uh, you know, embrace this whole more diverse society and then develop from there. So uh, at some point along in history, the traditional uh, religious law split off or, or the civil law split off from that and became a further development of all this. Uh, but they still, our civil laws are rooted in some notion of right and wrong. I mean, they're not just totally arbitrary. But it is useful to be aware of a distinction between social and moral law because much social law is adaptive to local cultures. Yes. Whether they're religious or, right. or social. And in fact, it, you know, in, in a relative way to look at it, it's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, we need social laws and we need them to be very flexible and we need, you know, to be able to change them very quickly because circumstances are changing. And, uh, and, that, and so there is a very important distinction between that and your, what we call your personal moral code. And it also has to do with the, uh, the difference of why you're practicing. So again, you know, ultimately, even when you, you know, stop for a red light, that can be a spiritual act especially if you're a little late and if the light is, you know, just kind of yellow and <laughs> you say, oh, well, let the other person be inconvenienced, I'll rush through. So you can actually make even those things into spiritual practice. The thing I'm wondering about is, you know, the idea that, uh, of the tantric idea of no reference points mm -hmm. and then this idea of selfishness versus selflessness and that isn't a reference point you know we're making a reference point there but we have to see beyond it in other words that yes. goes beyond the sermon and all well things change in a spiritual path and as the sufis say what's true at one stage at the next stage is not true and then may become true again in a different way at the following stage right. So we also have to be careful of that. But I think it's fair to say that these tantric practices and so forth, uh, not only is it fair to say, it's stated in the text, that they are for people who have already attained a degree of selflessness that now we can uh, work on even throwing out the reference points for what that might mean. And the attachment to being right or being wrong, even the subtlest little attachments here. Do you see what I mean? 
But there are all sorts of warnings scattered through the Tibetan literature just because of this. It was abused because there were people who decided they didn't need to do anything about their, you know, purifying their hearts, as uh, Al-Ghazali talks about, and they could just go practice Tantra. Then the great masters say things like, people who think like that are not following the Buddha, they're following Mara, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. And so this is why we really need a situation, with a uh, really a, a master who's walked the path, who who can tell what's going on here the, the better than we can about our motivation, what's the right practice. It gets, you know, it's a prescription within a certain practice at a certain time and a certain stage, but it's not a general prescription about morality. Yes. I have found it really useful in my own life to, uh, when I start thinking in terms of right and wrong, it, it kind of drives me crazy. It's like dualism kind of rubbing itself against itself and a little brush fire starting. But um, thinking uh, more in terms of connectedness or unconnectedness, um, my basic philosophy uh, worldview just being that, you know, there's a, there's a massive force at work of which I am a part and that the closer I can come to seeing that part and playing that part, the better off I will be. Um, so thinking in terms of open-hearted or closed-hearted or connectedness or disconnectedness as opposed to right and wrong, the, the connected choices being the, the higher choices and then the disconnected choices being the wrong choices or just the lower choices without, you know, getting in those whole such subjective terms like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just wanted to... No, I, I think that's good. That. And I think what you're talking about is the motivation. You're concentrating on the motivation. The, the value of having specific precepts is often, for a lot of people anyway, we have very good intentions, but we, are, we get so wrapped up in our daily lives, we don't really realize when we're being selfish in very concrete little ways. And working with precepts throws the light of attention onto this moment. And so it makes us... Um, it keeps us, in a certain sense, uh, on track walking our talk. And so we say, oh, you know, I don't believe in lying. I think, you know, I'm obeying a higher principle and so forth. And then, but if you actually have a precept, you find all the little ways you do lie or deceive yourself or others or whatever. And so then you can actually start working on unraveling this delusion of self. So they're, they're very helpful in that way. This isn't a question of... Um, should or shouldn't, they're just very helpful. And I've found in my spiritual path, and I think a lot of people do, really when you start working with them, it makes all this stuff very nitty gritty and concrete. We're not just talking about abstract, you know, ideas about right and wrong. And then there are all these situations that come up, I mean, throughout the course of the day where we really do have to choose, you know, based on as far as we can fathom our own motives, what is what is selfish and what is selfless? What is the higher and what is the lower? You know, what is the, really the loving and compassionate thing to do? And what is the reaction that's coming out of fear? And, um, uh, you know, and our lives are made up of those concrete moments. You know, they're not made up of the big uh, philosophies we have. So the working with precepts is very powerful in that respect. We did go on long this morning, so let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close, and you're welcome to hang around and check out the library and have some tea and chat. And until we see you again, peace to you all.